We're going to do a Bible study tonight, so a lot of page turning in Romans. We'll eventually end up for the most time in eight, chapter 8. You can see the title is Live Loved, and you might ask, what does that mean? I have found in talking to people over many years that a lot of Christians know intellectually uh, what the love of God is. They've read the Bible enough to realize that he loved them and he died for them and so forth and so on. But I don't know that there is as many people who every day their life is transformed by it. And tonight I want to show you, I, wanna, I, I truly believe that one of the greatest needs a Christian have in their life is to be secure in the love that God has for them. And I want to show you what that means tonight because I'm not sure that you would probably think some of the things that the scripture says about it, but it's true. And so I want to do, I'm going to tell you where I'm going. Number one, we're going to talk about the love of God in this way, vertical, that he has for you. And that is, if you divide Romans up in the first 11 chapters, you'll find that it is more of a theological section and then you'll find in chapters 12 through 16, it's the practical section. And that division alone would give you the place I'm going because I want to talk to you about, number one, the love that God has for you. And then I want you to see that what the Bible stresses most is you might think, well, the love I have for him. Well, that's in there once. But the ramifications of God loving you is not it is, but it's not mentioned as often that you love him, that's assumed. But the real assumption or the real consequence of it is, is that you love others. All you have to do is do a cursory reading of 1 John, and you'll find it repeated constantly in different ways, is that if you say, John says, that you love God, but hate your brother, strong language, ready? You are a liar. That's how strong the connection it is that we love God vertically, and then secondly, we love others horizontally. You cannot have one without the other and be a Christian. So let me show you some of the ones, and we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to go through them and make brief comments on them in our Bible study, all right? So we're going to go through this way. The first thing I want you to see is that there are um, a number of times that there is an identity marker laid out for us, calling us a name based on God's love for us. It's not just used in this epistle by any stretch. You know it as soon as you'll hear it. It's in almost every letter Paul writes. And that is the term beloved. It is a noun using the word love. The ones who are loved, that would be basically the way you would say it. And I want to show you because they're absolutely crucial. Paul starts his letter with this love story, God loving you, and he ends it with it and a bunch of times in between. It's not something that you normally would think of when you think of Romans because you think of the thick theology and all the other things that are going on there. But this epistle, I call it a love story. And I want to show it to you, and I want you to be moved by it. And then we're going to go back and do it a second time and then stop in chapter 8. So chapter 1 and verse 7, if you would. To all those in Rome, and here's how he describes them and wants them to see themselves from the very get-go. To those in Rome who are loved 
by God. That is the first identity marker that he gives you. Let me just give you the immediate application. And and I'm going to encourage you tonight in some different ways. But let me tell you, I think the number one thing that is, if you have a parent with kids growing up, and I would say in particular teenagers and on into college, the number one thing that I would talk about the most every chance I got would be identity. I, would, I think it's the number one issue that our teenagers, they don't know who they are or they should be as Christians. And let me tell you this, and if they have an identity, a lot of times it's not the one that God would give them. And let me tell you this, having a false identity is cataclysmically destructive. It is awful. And so here's what God says through Paul to the Romans right off the bat. Let me tell you who you are. So write this down. The love of God shapes your identity. You are to think. If someone asks you who you are, here's one of the most important ways you could answer. I am deeply loved by God. That is how you should think of yourself. You are loved by God. It's who we are. Now, that goes in a million applications. And again, I can't do them all tonight because there's so much ground to cover. But let me tell you this. There are a lot of people who do not feel that they are deeply loved. They weren't deeply loved by their parents. They got married and ended up they weren't deeply loved by their spouse. They had friends who forsook them and used them. They weren't deeply loved by them either. And so there are lots of people who struggle with feeling the fact that they are loved by anybody. But God wants you to know that you are his Beloved, chapter 9 and verse 25. This is in the section, chapters 9 through 11, where he's talking about God, does God have a future for Israel? And in this passage, he quotes Hosea, which is a love book, right? Gomer and all that love story. He says, those who are not my people, Isaiah 9, 25, I will call my people, And her who was not loved or beloved, I will call my beloved. So here's what salvation is. It's calling a people that God was not his beloved. So let me tell you how this works. Ready? God loves people on a national level. Later on in chapter 9, or I said actually earlier on because we're in chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 13, here's what God says. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated which often means less, loves less. Why? Because Jacob is the representative of Israel. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So when God talks about Jacob, he's not just talking about the individual, although he is. He's talking about Israel. And Israel are the people that he has chosen to love above all the people in the faces of the earth. And so God sets his love and elects you to be loved And God says this, I love people on a national level and I call them my beloved. Chapter 11 and verse 28, let's keep going. As the regards, again talking about Israel, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as it regards election, they are, there's our identity marker again. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God says, I still love Israel. I haven't cast them off. They are still my people, and I still love them. So God loves people on a national level. 
chapter 12 and verse 19. Keep turning. Now we're turning into the practical section. Chapter 12 and verse 19 reads, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So he loves people, big funnel, ready? National people, and now he's nearing it down. Now I love the people who are Christians in the church at Rome. So national, church level, but again, he's not done. Turn to the last chapter for this identity marker, beloved. Chapter 16 and verse 5. And I want you to notice that now Paul is using the personal pronoun with this identity marker and says, my beloved. And now he's going to tell you that Paul, God through Paul, loves people not only on a national level, not only on a church level, but he loves them on a personal level. How much does he love you on a personal level? He is going to tell you by Paul, using Paul, that he loves you by your name. Chapter 16 and verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convent to Christ in Asia. Verse number 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. And then he also says in verse number 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. And then he says it one more time in verse number 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania, Tryphosa, greet the beloved Persis. So here he has people that we don't ever know much about it, but here's what he says. Because of Christ, these are people that I love through God, and I know their name, and I know them personally. So I think the first big lesson of the context of this love story in Romans is this, that God loves, listen, you can say, well, God loves the Christians, and God loves all these people, but what about me? Because it seems like everybody's overlooked loving me in my life. I can tell you this. Once you know God, can I tell you this? He loves you. He loves you deeply. And he loves you personally. And he loves you by name. He knows everything about you. You know how important this is? Incredibly important. Do you remember on the Sea of Galilee where the storm came up and the disciples uh, were on the storm And they wake Jesus up in the middle of the storm because they think they're going to get swamped and die. What is the question that comes out of their mouth? What? Say it out loud. Don't you care? Yes, don't you care? So how important is it to know that you are deeply loved by God? It's important because you can't make it through storms without it. You can't conquer fear without it. You can't know who you are without it. And I'm going to tell you in a minute, and you can't properly love others without it. Particularly, you cannot love others that are difficult to forgive. You cannot love others who are very unlovely. You cannot love others that don't love you back rightly over long periods of time. You can't do any of those things. You can't forgive others who are not loving, you will be virtually impossible if you first are not secure in the identity of who you are about loving others. God's love for us makes us secure and safe. All right? That's a, so knowing you are loved 
can change everything in your life. It can change your marriage, your friendship. It can change your relationship at church. It can change your relationships with your children and all those things and and much, much more. So here we have the first part of it. And that is the vertical love of God. That is our identity, that he loves us. Number two, real quickly, there's a horizontal love that he wants to show us. And that's going back now to chapter 12 and verse number nine. So if you, got, you are secure in the love of God, here's what you will be able to do. You will be able to love others in any context. I wrote down on my paper that you need to live loved so that you can give love. Let me say it again. You need to live loved so that you can give love. Because if you're always searching in it and think that you never have it, you cannot give what you do not own. And Paul says, here's what you need to know about yourself. First thing, right out of the chute, you need to know that you are deeply loved by God. For what reason? Chapter 12 in verse 19 reads, we, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Have you ever had trouble with that? Someone ever hurt you and you want to take it upon yourself to be judge and jury to get back at them? They made you look bad, now you're going to make them look, they said something about you, now you're going to say something about, right? Have you ever had a hard time leaving it to let God take care of it? That you're going to step in, you know how it works, right? I, I think it was super hard. I watched the, uh, the news right before I came over here about the guy who killed 10 people, remember, recently? And the guy that was, they were naming off all the people who were killed and the guy's dad jumped up and ran at the guy, young kid, who killed all of them. You know why? He couldn't handle it. <laughs> I understand the emotions are high. But he was going to take out vengeance. He wasn't leaving it to the government or anybody else to handle the wrath, especially God. As hard as that is, God gives us the ability to leave it to him, and it changes us. It changes the way that we live. Chapter 16, we already did that in verses 5 through all, and all the other ones. So we have a vertical one, 12, 19. Now turn over to 13, 8, 9, and 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, Torah. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. That's the second half of the Decalogue, which all of those are relational. The first part of it is vertical. The second half is horizontal. Here's what he says, that when you know Christ and you have his love, then you'll be able to fulfill the law And the law says, not only those Ten Commandments, but here's the other one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the only way that you can love others is if you know the love of God and are secure in it. Chapter 14 and verse 15. How could you give up your own rights? How could you give up your own status? How could you lay aside what you think is obviously something that you can do when it might offend someone else? Chapter 14 and verse 15. It reads, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You're no longer, may I say, 
living loved. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So what is the effect of the cross? It is not just the fact that you're forgiven and you go to heaven. And by the way, one of the things in the New Testament is that Jesus' death on the cross is just as much not only securing your future, but changing your present especially when it comes to your relationship with others. And here's what he says. If Jesus died on the cross for that person in your church, then you're not going to go and do anything that you know purposely will offend them, even if you have to lay down your own rights. See, that's what the love of God does. It changes your view of people and how you respond to them and relate to them and how you think of them, even if they may not be able to be in the same place where you are as far as spiritual maturity goes. Chapter 15 and verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, which, remember chapter 5, verse 5, has been poured out in your hearts, to strive together me in your prayers to God in my behalf. So here's what he says. I want you to have the love of spirit, the spirit, the love of the spirit inside of you so that you will pray for others. And in this case, it was Paul himself. And then we saw all the chapter 16 ones. So here we have, and our, we're going to get to our last part. Here we have the vertical love of God for you. And that is your identity. That's God's love for you. And then horizontally, that should overflow into your love for others. Where do you get the ability to do that? What is it about God's love that allows someone to be that kind of person? That's where Romans 8 comes in, if you'll turn there. Now I'm going to get fast. Ready? There's a number of brackets that form this text, the entire chapter, and I'm going to give them to you, but not develop most of them. This chapter locates every Christian in a little phrase called in Christ. Notice chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 3, and 8.39. It brackets the entire text. 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation to those who what? Are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We know that is love because we just read it. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh and the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit. And then at the end, he says, chapter 8 and verse 39, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Now let's talk about that because that's what we're going next. It means this, you are not condemned. Not condemned, verse 1. Therefore, no condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 34. Also a bracket is condemnation in this chapter. 834 says, who is to condemn? Rhetorical question. The idea is nobody. Why? Because Jesus died for us. What is the basis that every single Christian, here's your security, you are loved by God deeply. How deeply? You never have to worry that you will ever be condemned by anyone or anything. Now, you talk to people who have been condemned by others, have been told that they aren't worth anything, and you'll never be anything, 
and you, you don't even know why you exist. People have been told those lines. Can I tell you this? God doesn't speak those lines, not to his children. You know why? Because there is no condemnation, not just hell, but everything that goes with it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can see in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, but the, also the, the book says there is no separation in this chapter. That is what it is. When you're condemned, the result of it is separation. There is, God's love for you will never condemn you and you'll never be forsaken by him because of it. Now, let me tell you this. That's crucial because we love people and they condemn us and then they forsake us. This is unconditional love that we've been talking about. This is the kind of love that God says. And and let me tell you this. It is crucial that we understand just how powerful this is. Let me show it to you. There are four uses of the word love in the last part of the chapter. And most of you know them but may have never put them together. It is a reciprocal kind of love which is mutual. Which means God says when he loves you and you love him, that is an inseparable relationship. Period. Let me show you what I mean. The famous verse, 828, says, and you don't really realize the part that maybe matters the most, and we know that, underline it, and we know that for those who love God. Now, he, notice he doesn't say and for Christians. No, because what is a Christian? It's not only, watch, here's your identity. Not only that God loves you, But you love God. Did you know it has to be both? It has to be both. And I don't mean just this kind of love for God. A life that demonstrates that you love God. Here's what he says. All things, all things, all the things that God has planned, all the redemption, your justification, your sanctification, your glory, all the things that God has planned spiritually, they will all work together for good for those who, who love God, right? That's you loving him. Now watch, the rest that we love the most follows that. Verses 8, 31 through 39, all talk now about your love for God. But let me tell you this, it is not just a one-way street. It is you love God, God loves you, and that relationship is not as uncondemnable and inseparable. Let me show you the sandwich. I call it, everything's about food. Love sandwich, right? Chapter 8 and verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us, first time, the love of Christ? Now, I want you to do two things. I want you to circle the word who. Okay? Go down to verse 39. And it says, Am I got that right? Yes. Okay. Um, nor height, for what shall I say? Neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other thing created will be able to separate us from the love. And I want you to write in the text, what? So who or what? All right? So we got either way, you can't be separated in either one of those categories. Now, I want to give you another thing if you're writing your Bible. Okay, I want you to see these things when he asks these questions. In verses 35 and verse 36, he gives seven things that are visible. All right? And all of them but death, Paul has experienced. 
and he names them tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He hasn't got the sword part yet, but believe it or not, he will before it's all over. Seven things that he writes, and they're all visible, and they're all things that people do to you, right? So you got the who and you got the what. So there are things. So there is nothing here. Let me, how secure are you so you can live loved? There's nothing that you could possibly see in this world, and I mean nothing, that could ever interrupt, separate you from the love of Christ. Not a thing. There is no one, no matter who, how strong you think they are or what they can do to you, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But he's not done. Now he's going to tell you this. Look at the last list, chapter 8 and verse 38. Now he's going to tell you about some invisible things. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. So all the things that you've ever seen or could see cannot hurt your love relationship with God. (laughs) And all the things that you have never seen and probably will never see in this life None of those things, as real and powerful they are, in fact, more than the powerful than the visible things, those can't harm you either, he says. And then there's a word he has for that kind of life. Someone who lives loved, the Bible says, is more than a conqueror. I think that's King James. But in this version, it says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Here's the middle sandwich. Who, through him who loved us. So you are uncondemnable, uncondemnable in the love of God. And you are unconquerable in the love of God. It is a Greek word, more than a conqueror, which means superabundant conqueror. And the way that it's used in Greek literature is that when you fought a battle and you won, you won easily. You won by a mile. It wasn't even close. Now, think about how strong God's love for you is tonight. You are facing some of the worst possible pain, pressure, problems ever visibly. Things that are way beyond your scope and imagination and powerful more than you could fathom invisibly. He says you face all those things, and as great as they are, they can't even hold a torch to you. They can't touch you. Why? Because you are deeply loved by God. Now get a hold of that in your life. No matter what you are. Now I want you to look at the circumstances differently. Look at the visible things that Paul lists one more time. What are they for? They're all the things that happened to him when he loved others. They're all the things that happened to him when he loved God and shared the gospel. You know why he was beaten in persecution? You know why at times he had famine and nakedness and peril? Read 2 Corinthians 11 sometimes if you want the exhaustive list. How he's beaten with rods and he was stoned and left for dead and he was shipwrecked numerous times, bitten by a snake, let down the wall in a basket and on and on and on it goes. So how do you have all those things done to you by all those people that were so awful to you, but yet you keep going, you keep giving the gospel, you keep loving them until they actually cut your head off? 
How is it possible through him who loved us? Imagine your life, just for a moment, imagine your life so full of the love of Christ that you are completely unshakable. That there isn't anything that someone could say to you, there wasn't anything that someone could do to you that would shake or rock even for a moment your confidence that God loves you. What would be different in your marriage? What would be different in the way that you see the people that you work with? What would be different about the cantankerous and difficult people in your own family at times? What would be your response and how would you be different when people don't meet your expectations? When people sin against you again and again and again? How do we do that? The love of Christ. Where does that come from? Let me tell you the last part. Chapter 8 and verse 32 says, oh, let me start with verse 31, I'm sorry. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? In other words, bring them on. He lists them all. I told you all that. Who is this person? All the things he meant. Who could be against us? In other words, how could they possibly, how could they possibly think that they could get to me? Where does that come from? Where does that confidence come from? Listen, ready? God, who did not spare his own son. Listen to this. His own is a pronoun meaning personal intimacy. Remember what John says in chapter 1 and verse 12? They came unto, he came unto his own, meaning Israel, his people, and his own did not receive him. His own, that's the people that are closest to you. The people that you should expect them, expect them to love you back. The people that should be right on the same page in life. These are the people you live with, that you married, that your children are, your friends at church. These people should be God who did not spare his own son, who he had the closest love relationship with, but gave him up And that is the same word that is used to describe when Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus gave him up. I mean, Judas gave him up. He turned him in. Can I tell you this? Watch. Judas didn't ultimately have Jesus killed. Did you know that? It wasn't Pilate who was ultimately the one most responsible, although both of them were. Do you know who designed Jesus' death and had it? For sure carried out, God. God who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Now listen, it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Ready? If God was willing in his love relationship to give his only son to die on the cross. That is the greatest act of love that you could ever imagine. If he would do that for you, here's what he says. Let me argue the lesser now. Then how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Are you kidding me? If God gave his son for you and loved you this much, here's how secure you should be. There is absolutely nothing ever, ever, ever that you need that he will not give you. That's the love of God in your life. If you could grab a hold of all the dimensions of that and what it really means for Jesus to love you and what it cost him and how God gave that to you, you would be able to love people differently. In your marriage, in your home, at your job, no matter where you are, what you face, you would be able to love one another differently. So Jesus says to his disciples on the night he would be betrayed, that he would be given up. It says in chapter 13 and verse 1, having loved them, he loved them to the end. But you know what it says right with it? Knowing that all these things were about to happen to him. He knew they would betray him, that Judas would lead him away, and the soldiers to them, that Peter would deny him, the other ones would run, hardly anyone would be at the cross. He knew it all, and still it says he loved them and loved them to the end. Read John 17. If you ever want to see how secure Jesus was in the love of God, go look at that. I want to love them, Father, with the love that you and I have had before time began. That's how much you were loved. I'm going to say it strong because read John 17. God loves you the same as he loves Jesus. Let that blow your mind. You are loved like that. What will that do for you? Let me say it one more time. And Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples when you love God. No. When you love one another, hear me, as I have loved you. You need Jesus' love to love Jesus. And you need Jesus' love to love others. Because if you're not full of his love, you won't be able to pour it out to others. Lastly, and for your own study, two verses in Romans 5. Verse 5 says, And the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Look through Romans. It's a Trinitarian love. God the Father loves you through Jesus by the Spirit. The, let me, you know how deeply you're loved? All the Godhead is involved. Every bit of the Godhead loves you. He says, I poured out in you, I poured in you the love of the Spirit. And the very few verses later, but God demonstrated his love for us. See, he pours it in because he poured it out. He demonstrated it on the tree when he demonstrated his love for you. That Watch, even when you were sinners, see, you didn't love him back. You didn't want anything to do with him. You rejected him. You put your hand in his face. And yet, what was his response to you? I love you. Not just love you. I love you enough to die for you. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that to people that put their hand in your face? People who don't acknowledge, respond, but reject your love over and over again? Here's what he says. Get an understanding of how much God really, truly loves you. And it will change everything, vertically and horizontally, so that we can learn to live loved. Let's pray. 
With every head bowed and every eye closed tonight, just real quickly before we end. Are you living loved? Do you really grasp tonight the dimensions, the depth of all that it means for God to say, I love you? I mean, we talk about it so flippantly with Valentine's and all of that. This is a completely different kind of love. Do you know what it means to be loved by God? And let me ask you this, not intellectually, but would your life demonstrate it? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you just pray this in your heart to the Master? Say, Father, I know you love me, but I want to really know it. I want to know it deeper, wider, stronger than I've ever known it before. I want to be saturated, soaked with it. And I want, I'm asking you that as I know your love better, it would change the way I love others in every possible way. Father, I remember the songwriter, the hymn writer, the love of God, and he says as if we could have a quill We wouldn't have the parchment. Even if the parchment was the sky, we couldn't write the words that would equal the love of God. And if we used the ocean as the ink for our quill, it wouldn't be enough. Hmm. Father, I think too many times, too often, we just don't really grasp what it means to be loved by you. Because we compare your love with all the other people around us who haven't loved us the way we would have liked Oh, Father, but you love us way better, way different than anyone else. May it bring rapture to our soul, wonder to our mind, and a different life for us every day in which we live. May your love, as Paul said, constrain us, compel us, get a hold of us. Pour it in again, O Lord, that we might pour it out on others. We ask in your name. Amen. You are dismissed.